0: Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast Insights Segment, where we investigate major topics that are shaping biotechnology today. For updates about upcoming guests, follow us on social media and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm your host, Joe Varielli. Our guest today is Dr. David Dornan. David is the Chief Scientific Officer of Elevation Oncology, a clinical stage biotech company developing targeted cancer therapeutics with a focus on antibody drug conjugates. David brings to Elevation over two decades of industry and academic oncology, drug discovery and development experience. His research spans across multiple therapeutic modalities, targeting cancer susceptibilities and modulating the immune system to translate into meaningful therapeutic interventions for patients. As chief scientific officer, he was responsible for the scientific strategy and building of the company's portfolio in targeted immunotherapies. Before leading these efforts at Elevation Oncology, David was the CSO at BOLT Biotherapeutics. Prior to this, he was the head of oncology research at Gilead. David began his career at Genentech, where he spent 10 years serving in positions of increasing responsibility and played key roles in target discovery and validation, as well as traditional research programs. David received his PhD from the University of Dundee in molecular oncology and biochemistry and completed a postdoctoral fellowship at Genentech. David, thanks for joining us today.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure
0: thank you for hosting I want to get into first the the foundations of your career and you're speaking to an audience of um PhDs or postdocs maybe looking for their first scientist position not ready to leave the bench and, and looking to get into industry um you started your career as a postdoctoral fellow and then scientist at Genentech can can you talk a bit about how that shaped your career and and how it ended up to you now being in, in managerial positions um, w- within scientific groups at at various companies that I'd mentioned.
1: Yeah, sure, happy to do that. Um, so like everyone else in academia, right, um, especially during my PhD, you start to think about what's next. Um, there's very few people who start a PhD and, and you know, make an assumption here that where well, you absolutely know what you want to do in life. But what I would say is that you know, we all do PhDs because of science, right? We all want to try and find out the next discovery, something that's going to be meaningful um, and not just fill a textbook, right? And so I think that, you know, during my PhD, um, you know, I had a clear goal of trying to uh, essentially find a novel discovery that could be impactful for, for cancer patients. And that was really the the impetus for it. But I didn't know if I wanted to go to industry or whether I wanted to go to um, Sorry, whether I wanted to stay in academia, and so I found, or you know, through searching and talking to folks in my network, that hey, they have postdoc programs within industry. That's a great way to try it out. And so my time at Genentech, um, you know, was probably the the probably one of the the brighter spots of of my career, um, to be honest, because um, it allowed me as a scientist with an academic background. To also still do academic research within an industry uh, setup, um, but what it did do, you were surrounded by true drug discovery and developers. Um, and what that does is, you start to listen to the language, right? You start to understand what it takes to truly translate a discovery um, and turn it into a true drug product and ultimately a therapeutic for a patient. Um, so, I so certainly, you know, my my time spent there. Um, it was started off to be academic in nature, but we found something very cool, was intriguing, and it turned into a drug discovery program. And so, really, it just allowed me as a scientist to really see what it was like to live in industry, if you will. Um, you know, and I really, like everyone else, I considered like what it'd be like to go back to academia at that, at that time um, versus staying in industry. But I ultimately decided to stay in industry because I really appreciated the laser sharp focus of taking something that clearly it was a discovery worth pursuing and then working with a team of individuals all rowing in the same direction and working as fast as possible to try and translate something into um, ultimately as i mentioned something that could impact patient's life and that's really where the drive was of, of starting off my career at genentech um, and as you mentioned i did stay on after my postdoc time um, and you know ran my own group within the research organization there but I really want to be clear, like industry is um, very collaborative in nature. And as I said, that rolling in the same direction, I think, is honestly what makes progress advance um, or sorry, advance much in a more expedient fashion. And that's to me is what fitted with my um, my modus operandi, if you will. That's really what I wanted. I wanted to try and push things as fast as possible. Because um, I, I, you know, have firsthand experience what it's like, um, you know, with respect to, you know, having someone in your family who, you know, passed away with cancer, and it's something that you just don't want other people to go through the same um, affliction.
0: Yeah, and, and I think Genentech is really—it's obviously one of the pillars of the biotech industry, and, and has been since the inception of the biotech industry, and it, it seems like one of those unique places where you you get that. Industry scientist experience, um, where essentially you're almost running uh, your own small academic lab, and eventually, yeah. you know, you sort of move up the ladder, uh, and and you uh, become a senior scientist where you're you're managing uh, whole programs and and lots of people. Um, so I'm wondering, from from that aspect, from a managerial aspect, what did you learn from your time as a scientist that? aids in your decision-making today as chief scientific officer of Elevation Oncology?
1: So I think that being in a larger organization, you get to, you get, uh, you're privy essentially to things that work and what, what don't work, if you will, right? And that, 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 that means also from understanding how to manage people, um, because there's people who are good at it and people not so great at it. And then from the scientific perspective, you learn like, which technology platforms actually have a better chance of success, right? Which small molecules actually tend to be, um, we'll say, more successful versus others, Um, which scientific hypotheses tend to pan out more than others. And so what it does is that, you know, Genentech was that wonderful academic playground, but but having the laser sharp focus of turning those findings into um, true um, therapeutics. And so having that that span and also across different areas, so it wasn't just, I mean, my expertise, of course, was largely in oncology, but I was surrounded by folks who worked in neuroscience, immunology, um, as among other scientific disciplines, of course, but those therapeutic areas were the common ones at Genentech when I was there. But being surrounded by multidisciplinary scientists also challenged your thinking. It challenged you to think about things differently. And so sometimes the best, like everyone else, sometimes the best things that come out of uh, you know yeah, larger companies are usually those interdisciplinary collaborations, because everyone gives their own perspective. So that's the beautiful part about I would say when when you're at a place such as Genentech, you get to um, you, know, you get privy to that process. And then importantly, like how does that apply to like my day to day in elevation? Well. Elevation 70 is not Genentech, we're a, mo- way, a much smaller company, early, earlier stage company, if you will. Um, but what's important is that I can apply that wisdom and also access my network right, of, of folks to try and really like come up with. Well, if we had this limited resources, which of course we do in a smaller company, what's the best use of those resources? Right. So it trains you to be disciplined. In research, it trains you to be disciplined in ans- asking the right questions, and that's the difference I'd say between industry and sometimes in academia. Is academia some, sometimes you're able to, you know, explore and you will find things serendipitously, or you'll find things by either you know you, clearly you have hypotheses. But in industry, you're really trying to answer critical questions, and that's the way I would just say you know, From my training in industry, that's what I'd say helps when you're at smaller companies because resources are finite you
0: know, uh,
1: relative to larger companies where it's a little bit um, more open.
0: I appreciate how you, you sort of took away from that experience the idea of strategic decision-making. And in, in early-stage research programs, you know, the go-no-go criteria are often based on you know maybe animal studies, maybe some in vitro testing, where you're sort of paring sure. down all of the hits um, or lead compounds uh, for a specific program and trying to identify the one clinical target, but how did you develop uh, a, a knack for um, making those decisions at the clinical level? Um, I'm sure that was something that um, maybe you had dealt with uh, at at Gilead, where you're running a, a really mm-hmm. large research program with, with many um, drugs that are going into the clinic or progressing through early-stage clinical trials. Um, what's different about the strategic decision-making early on in that R&D phase versus that decision making in, say, early stage clinical trials in humans?
1: Well, it's what ultimately the clinical trials are going to do. It's one validate whether or not your hypothesis was true right, or false, depending on which way you look at it. And also importantly, it teaches you how your technology is actually performing in a human, right? clinical models are fantastic for asking questions um and obviously answering hypotheses um what they're not fantastic for especially in oncology is predicting whether or not it's going to work when you're in a human with the, such indi- with such a, a cancer right and so what's important to take always from the earlier stage clinical trials is one efficacy right does it work right that reality And sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. And that's a whole other topic we could touch on, of course. And the second thing is how tolerable is the drug, right? An important aspect of any therapeutic is, you know, what's the tolerability of it. And what we can learn from humans versus preclinical modeling is whether or not there is actually um, good correlations with certain classes of therapeutics. And so what you do is you build that institutional knowledge, whether you're working on like the RAS pathway, for example, or whether you're working on antibody-drug conjugates, right? Whether or not there's a good correlation. And so you can increase your chances of success by building that knowledge base. And and that's also as a community, it's not just within an organization, of course, we learn from the scientific field elsewhere, conferences and other companies and other um, academic labs who also focus on this kind of work. Um, So that's how I would say you can, you know, the critical aspect of any early clinical trial is being able to translate those findings um, into that meaningful therapeutic. And sometimes it works, which is of course um, unfortunately rarer than than not. Um, or you take those findings, even failure points. They're critical lessons to go back to the essentially the bench and redesigning something. Um, so, as much as yes, they're failures from a metric perspective. But most often than not, in their industry or even in academia, of course, you know we take those lessons and we try and fix the problem, whatever it is.
0: Really interesting insights, and you mentioned early stage clinical trials, and um, we'll get into elevation oncology's uh, really interesting data readout presented at ASCO this year um, in relation to your uh, antibody drug conjugate. Um, now, before we talk about the data, I think that maybe we should set the stage for our audience. Um, about what antibody drug conjugates are uh, and and what are some of the you know key factors driving development of antibody drug conjugates um, you know for my understanding uh, they're they're rather old drugs at least the idea of an antibody <laughs> yeah. drug conjugate is is a really um, you know was was formed um, you know early in in mid in the 19th century so um, these drugs have recently taken off and there have been a number of FDA approvals. Um, can you tell me uh, you know, in your words, what ADCs are and, and what advantage they have um, over other modalities uh, in, in terms of targeting uh, specific tumors?
1: Yeah, sure. So anybody drug conjugates by simple definition, right? They are antibodies that are conjugated to a drug of your choosing. Right? Classically, um, they are usually cytotoxic payloads but you can also choose immunostimulants. you can also choose even kinase inhibitors, you can choose what you wish to conjugate to. But the purpose of them is, is to deliver that therapeutic selectively to the cancer of, of design, right? So, and it does this by using antibody portion, of course, using the CDRs that recognize your antigen of choice and usually for uh, essentially any antibody or conjugate, you want to choose an antigen that is overexpressed in the cancer of interest, right? And ideally that candidate, if you will, um, or the antigen, if you will, has lower expression or no expression in normal tissue so that you can minimize any potential toxicities. And so it's a beautiful concept where if you administered a particular drug systemically, so it can get everywhere in your body, um, it could likely or more than likely it's cytotoxic. But the the lure of the ADC is that you conjugate an antibody; it gets, gets delivered selectively to the cancer, and therefore it can impart its effect with with having minimal impact in normal tissue. Um, so that's that's the the simplest definition I would say of the ADC.
0: Right, and two metrics or factors of um, ADC development uh, that I want to discuss briefly before we go into uh, elevation oncology's drug that they're. Pursuing in clinical trials um, are the type of payload, right? So the drug that's conjugated to the antibody um, and the ratio of that drug Mm -hmm. to antibody. So, can you give us an idea of how those two factors um, play into the efficacy of the ADC and how are those developed um, early on in, in your research program?
1: Yeah. So, like everything else, right, you have to ask the question what is it you're trying to achieve? Right. So the classes of payload, for example, I briefly touched on. So you, there's, different, there's different types of chemotherapies, for example, if your goal exclusively is to just kill cancer cells, one would, of course, from the even from the, um, you know, we'll say the, the Dana-Farber early days, right? Chemotherapy works, right? It can kill cancer cells. Um, but what ADCs have been able to do is allow us to access therapeutics or chemotherapeutics, if you will. just cannot be tolerated if administered systemically in a patient so by conjugating them onto the antibody of course as we had mentioned you're selectively getting them into the cancer cells less so in normal cells and so by definition what you're doing is you're able to take something that you just wouldn't be able to administer to a patient get it on an antibody deliver to the tumor and kill it Um, so the different types of payloads that you can conjugate to really, again, it's like, what are you trying to achieve? And so also there's uh, there's immune-stimulating antibody conjugates, which I know you talked to Shelly Ackerman uh, previously uh, from both uh, Therapeutics. And then, of course, what that approach is, as listeners will know from the podcast, is that you're trying to stimulate the immune cells within the microbiome, more specifically, the myeloid cells, um, with what that approach was. Um, but again, it's like, what is the problem you're trying to fix, right? And so, ultimately, that's what you should be designing. What your your payload is, but you do have multiple choices, um, and that's the beautiful part about ADCs. And then, with respect to, like you mentioned about the um, the DAR drug antibody ratio, it's called the number of molecules that you're conjugating onto the antibody. Now, again, that is there's two things to consider. One is, well, how much do you need to impart the biological effect? And the second thing is, well, how much can can your technology, or should I say the patient, tolerate, right? Because as much as there's selective delivery to the cancer cell, especially in first-generation antibody drug conjugates, the linker payloads were not very stable. And what I mean by that is sometimes when you administer the ADC systemically, uh, sometimes the payload gets prematurely released. And so the the payload ends up becoming exposed in some various normal tissues and that results in toxicities. So sometimes in, this kind of technology, um, the drug-antibody ratio is like a, it's a, sometimes defined based on a therapeutic index. And ultimately, how much benefit is a patient getting versus how much toxicity is. And so really a classic drug-antibody ratio can be anywhere between two and eight, just using standard approaches, but of course there are some nice technology approaches where you can get up to 30, even 60 molecules I've, I've seen nowadays, um, but again, it's about that balance of, well, how much can you do you need for biological impact versus how much can be truly tolerated? Um, So I think that that's just, hopefully helps you understand a little bit about, you know, the the payload choices and then how much you actually want to conjugate to the antibody.
0: I think that's really helpful in in driving our discussion forward in relation to Elevation Oncology. So Elevation, as I had mentioned, um, reported some early phase one data for uh, their drug EO3021, which is an anti-Claudin 18.2 ADC. And I'll let you describe, you know, why Claudin 18.2, but it is one of those targets that um, has been pursued by a number of individuals more recently uh, in gastric and and pancreatic cancer. And um, it's one of those targets that I really enjoy because there's this sort of multi- Modality approach. Everyone, you know, is, is targeting um, Claudin eighteen point two, but they have TCR uh, drugs, they have, you know, bispecifics, CAR T, ADC, you name it. So, um, you know, I, I want you to give us the headlines of of your um, early phase one data, but but also talk a bit about uh, the target Claudine eighteen point two and why you think ADCs are, are a good approach to go after this target.
1: Yeah, so I think that what I can you know, briefly cover first of all is like the cloud eighteen point two antigen, right? So it's it's a selective lineage specific antigen, right? So eighteen point two is specific to essentially gastric cells, or, or you know the the gastric mucosa, if you will. And so what is clear is that in um, in various different types of cancers, but mainly gastric, of course. Uh, cancer, but also some lung cancers, some ovarian cancers also express this antigen, albeit a smaller percentage. Um, and what is making it um, probably an, a really good target for various therapeutic approaches that you discussed um, is the fact that it only is lineage specific in that it's only the mucosa that expresses it. So when it comes to um, delivering payloads, right, you think about well, okay, it's not expressed anywhere else in the body except the gastro mucosa. So you have an opportunity to deliver things that are cytotoxic, right? Um, and so by doing that, um, ultimately what you're doing is you're getting the payload to the target that matters most, right? And that's obviously if you're gastric cancer that you have you know, clearly, you know, issues um, with, you have essentially epithelial, uncontrolled epithelial cell growth and essentially in your gastric epithelial cells. So an antibody-drug approach makes a lot of sense from that perspective. Um, so as you mentioned, there are other, or there's lots of approaches that people are taking. And I think like everything else, right? Um, when you run the experiment in the clinic, you'll see which approach um, uh, will bear fruit overall. Um, but what we have found, at least the elevation by using um, this ADC. So basically, our ADC, as you mentioned, it's an antibody that's specific to Claudin 2.2. It has essentially um, a microtubule um, destabilizing drug called MNE, and then we've conjugated it site specifically um, to uh, glutamine 295 um, on the antibody. And what that does is gives a much more stable profile, um, meaning that minimum drug gets released systemically and more gets delivered to the tumor. And so in the, the, the data you're referring to, our partner, um, CSPC, um, had run a trial um, in China, a phase one dose escalation. And we start and we have seen, you know, pretty uh, significant objective responses, as well as durable responses in patients with gastric cancer. And even I think one of the patients we reported the ACR in April, um it was um close to 12 months of durability in a patient that really had no standard of care options remaining and so i think that what our data is suggesting is that well our adc of course works but more importantly for the field at large right it's quality 2.2 is a great target for an adc and that's probably why you're you know as you're intonating, there are a lot of people approaching this uh, with different technologies um and ultimately you know um I always view it as the patient will always win the more people who are actually working on that particular antigen. Um, so I'm very encouraged to see, of course, the data that we're generating elevation, but also excited to see what other technologies can do.
0: And, you know, as you mentioned, it has shown some promising gastric cancer. It's, it's not uh, necessarily a, a basket trial that you pursued, but there were some individuals who had pancreatic cancer expressing that's right 18.2 yes did you see any signals of efficacy in in pancreatic cancer patients
1: Um, that's an ongoing area of investigation but you're absolutely spot-on it's something that you know we and our partners with CSPC are also looking at
0: yeah and uh, related to elevation oncology in particular so you, you know you have this ADC that's shown promise and I'm sure there are other ADC's that you're currently working on in, in your research pipeline. Um, do, you, do you have a process for discovering these, well, first targeted antibodies, but then effective ADCs? Can you tell us a little bit about um, some of the capability that you're building around uh, research pipeline um, to try to get more of these um, you know, effective ADCs into the clinic?
1: Yeah. I mean, so what thankfully um, nowadays what I would say is that given the human genome's been sequenced from end to end very much now, and that there's um, a lot of expression profiling data, um, the nature of RNA-seq, as well as proteomic data. um, Discovering antigens um, nowadays, like novel antigens nowadays, thankfully, that is not actually even as required as much, because there is like, we'll say like a top 20, um, if you will, favorite tumor antigens that really are solidly validated. that I would just say collectively large, the, the pharma and biotech community are focused on, right? There are room for discovery of novel antigens and there's fantastic companies that do that. So Elevation, we'll are um, we'll just say we're kind of platform agnostic in the way we view the world, right? We we have capabilities, of course, of building ATCs. We have capabilities, of course, of discovering novel um, targets, if you will. Um, but what is the most important is as a smaller company is um, You can take the approach to swing for the fences and going for something that's completely novel upon novel upon novel, but there becomes a large technical risk in being able to do that. And so that's why either you can do this via partnerships with other companies, so you share the risk. And so Elevation, we're very keen on that kind of approach um, as other companies too. Um, But also what I would say is the most important thing is, is there's a pragmatic aspect on selecting targets and drug candidates, right? If there's something that's already out there that showed that it had some efficacy, but it's not enough for approval, right? Clearly there's a room for version two, version three of the molecule, if you will. And so we, for elevation among other people in the field too, we think about, okay, maybe there's an opportunity there to actually add on a different payload, for example, or maybe there's an opportunity there to go after uh, a different mode of action. Maybe the first mode of action was insufficient. And I think the 80.2 is a good example of that, right? We saw that Zolbituximab, which is a monoclonal antibody to 80.2. It works largely with innate immune effector cell engagement. It uses antibody-dependent cell cytotoxicity, toxicity. And we've seen the phase three trials that it adds on some PFS on top of chemotherapy, but it wasn't like as a single agent blow your mind, you know, it was kind of wasn't that impressive, but, it, but, you know, it's still helping patients, you know, and of course, um, still we have a lot of gratitude for that. But what it taught us was there's something else there to add on, you know, there's, we can still maintain the ADCC function that Zolbitoximad has, but what we're doing here now is adding a cytotoxic payload with that idea behind it. And so there's just an, a simple example, but where you see there's room for improvement, you know, someone's already done the hard work of validating the antigen. It's like, well, have de-risked that right so now you can say yourself okay well let's use a novel technology that is likely to have a greater impact so these are just some examples of things that you know elevation we think about as we as we're building our pipeline and and our r d side Um, but again um um, pragmatic innovation is um is the key for smaller companies right Mm. to really a platform agnostic um but obviously you know there's companies and um that are true innovators going from scratch. And, you know, that's also a worthy approach.
0: Okay, yeah. What what can we expect from EO3021 in terms of milestones in the next year or so? So we're
1: initiating our trial in the United States. Um, That will be um, upcoming um, uh, in the second half of this year. So at some point before the end of the year, um, you can expect to see that. And then after that, um, it really will depend upon uh, rate of enrollment and where we see yourself at. And, you know, as a company, public company, we haven't offered guidance when the next data update will be, um, but in due course, we will do that.
0: Well, David, thank you so much for coming on today, and we really appreciate all your insights into the field of ADCs and the really interesting work that Elevation Oncology is doing here.
1: Well, thank you for the opportunity, and I appreciate the interest.
0: Thank you for joining us. Don't forget to follow Hopkins Biotech Podcast on social media at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter for updates about upcoming guests. And visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm Joe Verily, Thank you for listening.